0: Mark chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 34 and go to the end of the chapter this morning. So your Bible open, something to write with and something to write on, and you'll be in good shape for today. Uh, Back in June, there was a news story uh, about a fisherman fishing out of a pond in Hanover, And he thought he had a bite, but it turned out to be something very different. When he reeled in whatever was on the end of his line, it turned out to be a bomb. Uh, It was an unexploded bomb from this area down in Hanover. There used to be a munitions plant there called the National Fireworks Factory, and they would test munitions. And uh, the factory shut down in 1970, but apparently didn't take all their inventory with them. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how you're loading the truck, and then you ask Bill, hey, did we get all the bombs? And then Bill said, most of them, good enough, load it up, we're out of here. That's what they did. So here's this unexploded Vietnam War era bomb fished out of a pond in Hanover. And town officials closed the pond, closed the whole area, and uh, there's several news stories about this. They've been finding now unexploded unexploded ordinances, that's hard to say, uh, all around this pond and on these trails, or public hiking trails uh, around this area. So they have it shut down for now, and they've been working hard to go and find uh, all of these unexploded bombs. Uh, And you know and you understand why city officials close the whole area, because there's bombs there. And we know what a bomb does. Even if the bomb is 50 years old, bombs go boom. That's what bombs do. And so it's best for you and I just to stay far away. We don't need any fish out of that pond. Uh, We will find other ponds to go fish in, other trails to go hike in, because a bomb is a bomb. And it has one purpose, that's to go boom. Bombs are not hats. A bomb is not a croquet mallet. A bomb is not a bowling ball. A bomb is not a cell phone or a teething ring. A bomb is a bomb. It has a very clear definition. It's designed for this one purpose, bombs go boom. Just like the word bomb has one definition, so too does the word disciple. However, in the practice of our faith, in the practice of so many people, we treat the word disciple as if it is a choose-your-own-adventure. Like it has a fill-in-the-blank type of definition. And so disciples of Jesus may look very, very different from church to church, from person to person. So many people claim to love Jesus, to know Him, even to follow Him. But then when we compare those lives against the biblical record, we find that their lives fall short of how a disciple is described. So what about you? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Would you describe yourself as a disciple of His? And if so, by what standard? What is the metric that you use to say, I am a disciple? It's one thing to feel like a disciple. One thing to feel religious or to have spiritual thoughts or inclinations. So, who gets to decide? Who gets to define what a disciple is? Shouldn't Jesus have some sort of say in this? Well, absolutely, he should. And in fact, he has quite a bit to say about it. In the passage we're studying this morning, Jesus makes it clear that a disciple has a definition. It's not a fill-in-the-blank definition. It's not one definition with many shades of expression. Jesus defines discipleship. What if we are disciples by the wrong definition? What are the possible consequences of that? If I call myself a follower of Christ, but the standard by which I consider myself His follower is not Christ's standard, what's the consequences? Well, I think at best you would be a crummy disciple, ineffective, powerless, wrecked by sin, not an asset to the gospel the kingdom. That's best case scenario. At worst, listen to me, friend, at worst, you get this wrong, you're not even a Christian. So we deal with very serious matters this morning when it comes to defining and understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So my goal today from our passage in Mark 8 is to describe discipleship in the concrete life-giving terms that Jesus gives. Jesus doesn't mess around here. He goes for the jugular. And so if we study this right today, then you and I will not only know what it means to be a disciple, we'll not only have this proper standard to work from, knowing that then compels us in the way we live. If we hear Jesus, we believe Jesus today, we're going to live in the way that He wants us to live. So our passage, Mark chapter 8, verse 34, picks up in the middle of a broader teaching unit between Jesus and His disciples. If you were to glance back at the beginning of chapter 8, you'll remember uh, sort of how we get to where we are, And, and you know that it has not been easy going for the disciples. Failure after failure, as they're put in situations where they have to trust Jesus, put their faith in Jesus, and they don't. Time and again, these guys fail and they get it wrong. Until we get to the passage we looked at last week that Pastor Seth preached, uh, a beautiful passage. They finally get something right. Jesus comes to this pivotal moment and asks the pivotal question of his disciples Who do you say I am? And you'll remember Peter gives the answer uh, as the spokesman for the group. He says, You are the Messiah. Jesus says, You've answered correctly. That's right. Here's the problem though. Peter and the other disciples, they've used the correct title, the correct term, Messiah, but they have the wrong definition for that term. And that comes out quickly in our story. Having answered, "You are the Messiah," Jesus then describes what it means that he is the Messiah. He says, "Look, here's what's going to happen. I, I, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be." Uh, rejected. I'm going to be betrayed. I will die. Three days later, I will rise again. He states it clearly. This is not enigmatic language, not some big mysterious thing. He states plainly where the Messiah will go, what the Messiah will suffer, and how the Messiah will reign. And you remember Peter's response. He pulls Jesus aside. No, 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 Jesus. We're not going to let this happen to you. This is where the old phrase, from the penthouse to the outhouse comes from. Peter had answered, you're the Messiah, penthouse. Then he rebukes Jesus, outhouse. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's not the end of the conversation Mark gives us some geographical markers that extends the conversation from there. It's, it's a traveling, a journeying conversation. But here's what Jesus knows: If Peter and his followers get Messiah wrong, they will get disciple wrong. So in the passage we're studying today, Jesus describes, in no uncertain terms, what it means to be his follower. Messiah means one thing. Disciple means one thing. Jesus explains exactly. And He does this by answering three questions for us in this very familiar passage. So I want you to listen with fresh ears and new eyes to the words of Jesus from the end of Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 34. Jesus continues His teaching. Verse 34, Then Jesus called the crowd to Him, along with his disciples, and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. It is a brief passage with nuclear power in it. And it's a familiar passage that you and I might be inclined to just turn our brains off and say, "Uh, I've heard this before. But I need you to study this with me this morning for your benefit and posture yourself to hear what Jesus has to say about your discipleship. So here's how I want to structure this and how I want to treat this passage. Jesus answers for us three questions. So I want to share with you these questions and highlight Jesus' answers, all of these related to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. All right? Question number one is this. Who is discipleship for who is discipleship for and the very first line of verse 34 answers this question for us in a part of this passage that we might just breeze right by we need to pump the brakes and check out the audience to whom jesus is speaking who's he speaking to beginning of verse 34 then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples who is the crowd in attendance this day well, the crowd is a recurring character, a reoccurring character throughout Mark's gospel. The crowd, the crowd shows up time and time again. And that crowd is often made up of a mixture of people. It might be made up of Pharisees and other religious professionals who are against Jesus. It might be made up of people who are just there for a miracle. And Jesus had those people, right? Everywhere He went, people are bringing the sick to Him. They just want Jesus to do this, these miracles for them. It might be people who are just looky-loos. They're kind of on the outside. What's all the hubbub? What's going on? They're just kind of checking out what's happening. It could be people who are also sincere followers of Jesus. They may not travel with Him, but through whatever means, whatever message, they've come to be uh, allegiant to Him. So the crowd is a mixture of people, normally peripheral people to Jesus. And then you have disciples. And the disciples are these men whom Jesus has called and they are traveling with Him uh, on His journeys as He fulfills His mission to preach the Gospel in all of these communities. So from the outset... Jesus' instruction on discipleship goes to everybody. The crowd and the disciples, the presence of all all these people together, tells us that this is not an exclusive teaching for an exclusive group of people. This is not just for Navy SEAL Christians or level 12 believers, whatever that is. This is for every person who would come after Christ, young and old, male and female, Christian for a long time, Christian for a brief time. Everyone who would follow Jesus Christ, that's who this teaching and this instruction is for. There's no other way to be a follower of Jesus than this. And there's no lesser way to be a follower of Jesus. And there's no greater way to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and follow him. That is the instruction for every believer. So, from the opening words of this passage, do you know who Jesus is speaking to? You. He gathers you in. Everyone, get around. I want to tell you what it means to be my follower, to be my disciple. I want to clear this up once and for all. Jesus is speaking to you, and so today you have to take stock of your life. You have to ask yourself, am I a follower of Jesus in the way he prescribes? Jesus sets the standard. He gives the definition. He helps us understand how we follow Him. Am I a follower of Jesus in the way He prescribes? Now, this is a hard question to answer honestly. I find that so many of us, myself included, assume that we know Jesus right. We assume that He must have the same values that I have. We assume that He agrees with the things I agree with. He's angry at the things I'm angry at. My politicians are His politicians. My political enemies are His political enemies. My definition of social injustice is His definition of social injustice. He likes my singing better than anyone else's. We make these assumptions that Jesus is on team me, and it may dull our evaluation of our obedience to Christ's command. And so I think it's best for us this morning, if we begin the study of this passage by putting ourselves at a deficit it's not going to help us if we start this passage making arguments on our behalf oh here's why this passage isn't for me but it's for someone else here's why i'm the best and the person next to me is less than the best here's why jesus had me in mind when he pictured what a disciple was like it's best for you and i especially the longer we've walked with Jesus, that we begin the study of this passage with ourselves at a deficit. Not to beat ourselves up. There's nothing sacred about just humiliating yourself and being down on yourself. But we have something to learn here. We have something to change here in our lives. So who is discipleship for? The way of the disciple is for every single believer. There's no such thing as a believer who is not also a disciple. That's question number one. Question number two, what does it mean to be a disciple? So we've answered, who is discipleship for? Jesus tells us, crowd, disciples, everyone who would follow him. But what does it mean to be a disciple? Jesus answers this also in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Familiar words that we oftentimes forget. Sometimes we we re-translate it according to our own experience. Jesus gathers the crowd and says, If anyone would come after me, he must be moral and take up his pew and follow me. (laughs) If anyone would come after me, she must bring positive vibes into the world and spend money only with vendors that give a portion to charity and follow me. If anyone would come after me, you must be true to yourself and just a generally good person and follow me. But Jesus is clear on the requirements of discipleship. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, with your eyes on verse 34, I've often heard this passage preached where this line is split up into three different aspects of discipleship. So you've got deny himself. Take up the cross is the second one. Follow me is the third one. I don't think that's the right way to approach this passage. I don't think there are three different aspects. I think Jesus is talking about one thing, following Him. So, if anyone would come after me, and then at the end of that line, the follow me, those are essentially the same ideas. He's talking about what it means to be His follower, to join our lives to Him as His disciple. That following is informed by the line, deny himself, take up his cross. Two aspects of following Jesus. So the conditions for being a follower of Jesus are self-denial and cross-carrying. So let's spend some time here and make sense of these two things. The first condition is self-denial. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Let's articulate first what it does not mean to deny yourself. It does not mean to deny yourself something. This is not a call to asceticism or, or a self-imposed poverty. The human heart is just as wicked on a bicycle as it is in a limousine. So Jesus isn't saying, just cut things out of your life and we're all good. Material possessions and whatnot. Nor is this a call to to reject oneself, self. hatred is not the way of Jesus. In fact, Jesus has told us this. Here's how you love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't hate yourself and love your neighbor. That's not the way of Jesus. So to deny yourself means this. To deny yourself means to shift the center of gravity of your life from concern for self to a reckless abandon for the will of God. I'm not the center of this universe. God is the center of my everything. He's the focal point. He's the Creator. I'm the created. Everything is for Him, through Him, by Him, from Him. So in denying yourself, you are renouncing your claim to yourself, your desires, your ambitions, your personal goals. And you are submitting to Jesus as a slave it's a denial of self-autonomy and self-sufficiency the person who denies self treasures and values jesus above everything else it's saying no to me and it's saying yes to jesus this is what discipleship looks like for every follower of jesus christ and there's no other way there's no lesser way there's no greater way to be his follower. See, Jesus lays claim to the whole of a person. He doesn't want just your religious trinkets. I'll give him a song. I'll give him some religious thing. I'll give him a church attendance. The rest of life is mine, but I'll buy him off by doing religious deeds. That's that's not what Jesus asks for. He lays claim to the whole of a person through and through. In God's economy... There's no such thing as shared ownership of a life. He owns all of it. This is good news. That's what it means to deny yourself. What does it mean to take up your cross? This is the second condition. Following Jesus means denying yourself, taking up your cross. Well, when you and I hear Jesus use these words, here's what we immediately do. We immediately kick Him into metaphor land. He doesn't really mean I need to go out and nail myself to a hunk of wood on the side of the road. But Here's the deal. When Jesus first spoke these words to this crowd and to these disciples, they didn't have a category for understanding this language as metaphor. Right? Peter doesn't all of a sudden spin around. Settle down, everyone. Just a metaphor. Just speaking in metaphor. It's, it's going to be okay. He doesn't really mean it. They receive this as a lot more literal than perhaps you and I are comfortable admitting. So let's be clear first about what this does not mean. What does it not mean to take up your cross? Well, carrying your cross does not mean bearing some burden, like an illness or an injury or a cranky spouse. The idiom does not apply here. That's just my cross to bear. That's not at all in the universe of what Jesus is talking about here. Here's what it means to take up your cross. It means to be willing to renounce everything, even your own life, for the sake of Jesus Christ and His gospel. Renouncing everything Everything sounds extreme. But the Bible gives us no lesser way to understand what it means to carry your cross. Think about Philippians chapter 2. And the mindset that Paul calls believers to carry, the mindset of Christ, who did what as he went to the cross? Paul says, He made himself nothing. And so, if you and I are going to be cross carriers, we've got to have that mind of Christ in us to renounce everything, even our own lives, for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And Paul models this for us. In Philippians chapter 2, he says Christ made himself nothing, went all the way to the cross. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Paul doesn't lament what he has renounced. He doesn't grieve over what he's left behind. Oh, I had an aspiring football career. He doesn't worry about that stuff because he's getting Christ in place of all of this, not Christ. Now, to this point, it, it may feel as if the way of discipleship involves giving up good things, every fun thing, every, every lovely thing, instead welcoming death. It, it sounds rather morose, perhaps. Unless you understand that the way of the cross is the exchange of something lesser for something infinitely more glorious the way of the cross is not the way of your end it is the way to your life so to say no to this world to renounce all these things is not some hard thing when we consider the treasure we have in front of us for example when i found the woman of my dreams it brought me no sadness to say goodbye to every other little crush forget about it I've got this treasure I'm giving everything for this one Jesus described it this way in Matthew chapter 13 verse 44 he says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field when a man found the treasure he hid it again and then in his joy, went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. So the way of the cross is not the way of sad Christians in sackcloth and ashes refusing to eat sugar and ice cream and being sad at sunshine and rainbows and all of that. The way of the cross is the way of life and glory and power in Jesus Christ. You see, cross-carrying has to be understood in light of the resurrection. And that's why Jesus has already given His disciples in the passage before this one, the one we studied last week. He tells them, I've got to go to the cross, but that's not the end of the story. I'm going to go to the cross. Three days later, I'll rise again. The cross is always seen and experienced and carried in light of Easter Sunday. Carrying the cross isn't a destination towards horror, the destination of the cross is an empty tomb. So cross-carrying has to be understood in light of Christ's resurrection. When He calls you to take up that cross, in our joy we leave everything behind and we embrace the treasure we have in Jesus Christ. What might it look like in a practical sense to live this way? Again, I want to be careful about describing this as a type of living or a type of renunciation that is so extreme it's only limited for a few or it's actions for the sake of the glory of God that that are just totally extreme and above and beyond what normal people can do. I would say to you that denying yourself and taking up your cross is a lot more painfully and wonderfully ordinary than you may realize. I think it looks like this. Um, I've got a friend who lives in another state named Raina. And when Raina was... 17 years old, her mother was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and it advanced rapidly and horribly. And Raina's dad was by her mom's side through all of it, but Raina was the one to care for her mom in the day to day, making sure she was okay in the morning before Raina went to school, coming home from school as a teenager and loving her mom and caring for her mom and cleaning her mom. And that terrible disease ran its course quickly and mercilessly. And Reina denied herself, took up her cross. Now, the overflow of her love for Jesus Christ cared for her mom in that. Three decades later, her dad was diagnosed with the same disease. Only his was longer and slower. And Raina reoriented her life, husband, family, everything, to care for her father in his sickness, to make sure he had what he needed. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Christian, it it looks like that. It looks like the husband who reorients his life around his wife's terminal illness or the wife who cares for her husband in his illness. It's the college student who's willing to be mocked for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Five minutes on your college campus and you are a total alien if you walk with Jesus Christ. You've got to be ready for those fiery darts that are going to come your way. It's the husband and wife in conflict who choose to love each other and choose to work towards reconciliation. It's precious hurting people with gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction who would say to Jesus, I don't understand why I feel this way, but I'm going to live in Your will. It's people who are generous. It's people who forgive much. It's people who pray with their kids. It's people who endure hardship. It's people who triumph over temptation. It's people who speak the Gospel. And it's people who dare greatly for the Gospel. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, looks like everyday life lived to the glory of God. And so much of that is lived in total obscurity, And total anonymity to the rest of the world, but God sees and God knows. And He honors His children when we walk with Him in this way. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Do you know what it does to a church whenever the church understands and practices discipleship this way? It makes relationships far more natural and organic. It makes us uncomfortable knowing that there's people on this side of the room that I don't know and people on this side of the room that I don't know. It makes us dissatisfied with sitting in the same room for an hour or so on Sunday morning and calling it community. It breaks our hearts for the lostness in our communities and compels us to gospel witnesses with casseroles and dinner tables and in the marketplace and at the Little League. And in a normal conversation at the grocery store checkout line, when we live this way, renouncing self, carrying the cross, living for the sake of the other in the way Christ has loved us, it gives us gospel power like nothing else. So this is what discipleship looks like. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, Following Jesus, these are the essential attributes. We might get to this point and you would say, why? Why would I do that? Yes, I, I, I love Jesus, respect, honor Jesus. But the, the things you're asking, total renunciation, willingness to lose my life. Why would I do that? Jesus knew you would ask that question and that's why He continues in this passage. The third question Jesus answers Why should I be a disciple of Jesus? Why should I be a disciple of Jesus? The main idea of this passage is in verse 34. If you're going to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the main idea. What comes next in verses 35 through 38 are reasons why you should live that way. It may not come across in your English translation so clearly. But in the Greek translation, each of these verses, 35, 36, 37, 38, all begin with the word for, F-O-R, for. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me for, one reason, for, think of it like a because, because this, because this, because this, Jesus rattles them off one right after the other. So why should I be a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to squeeze these four becauses into three. Follow along with me here. Verse 35, because Jesus will not fail you. Why should I be a disciple of Jesus? Deny myself, take up my cross. Jesus will not fail you. Verse 35. It's a paradox. Something that seems like a contradiction but it is not. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. So if if I try to save my life, I'll lose it. But if I renounce my life for the sake of Christ and the gospel, then I save it. It's this weird reversal of logic. Weird to us from our vantage point. We would think my life is mine to save, to keep, to improve. Jesus says that's a sure way to lose everything. In other words, if, if your life is made better by denying Jesus, by rejecting Jesus, by making yourself your own God, you're, you're going to lose it all. When you stand before God, you don't get to say, but it was really hard being a Christian. I wasn't going to have the life I could have had otherwise. and So you understand, right? I'm, I did it for my kids. I, I rejected you, but, but it was with good reason. You understand that. I, I meant well in all of it. But for what reason? What reason would suffice for the rejection of Jesus Christ and then think that in the end He would still do us well, judge us wholly? Is the reason for toys? Is it for reputation? Is is it for dollars? Because if you live for those things, those things are your God. They will judge your soul at the end of your life. And you're no follower of Jesus. You see, Jesus lays absolute claim to you. And friends, you have to carry that cross no matter the cost. And it will be costly in ways, but remember the cross is not the end of anyone's story. It's just a brief stop on the way to resurrection life. And we've got this incredible promise here from Jesus in verse 35. He's not going to let you down. I think this was a very real concern for the early church, the audience to whom Mark wrote this gospel. If you remember way back when we started this study in the Gospel of Mark, the the setting for this book, we believe, is Mark is writing this account for the sake of Christians in Rome who are undergoing intense persecution. So these words from Jesus as they read them, they didn't just exist in the theoretical. Mark's original audience had to be asking the question, is this really worth it? They're losing property and jobs and freedom and some of their lives, all because of their allegiance to Jesus. They get Jesus right and it costs them everything. Is this really worth it? This doesn't feel like my best life now. How should I approach this and think about it? And Jesus says, whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus will not fail his word to you. He will not fail you. You renounce everything, you take up your cross, and Jesus has promised you you'll be saved. Here's a second reason why we should be disciples. Second reason, because it's dumb to live for temporary things. Can we just be really honest? Jesus, look, Jesus doesn't cut corners here. He's very blunt. It is dumb to live for temporary things. Verses 36 and 37 tell us this. In verses 36 and 37, Jesus uses quite a bit of market language. Words like gain and loss and give and exchange. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? Right, if I've got the choice, I can have everything this world has to offer, or I can have Jesus. Which way will I go? Jesus says that the choice should be clear. Jesus himself faced the same situation. Matthew chapter 4 tells us the story of Satan tempting Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, we're told the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me. Isn't it interesting that Satan doesn't have to offer nearly as much for most people? It's not the kingdoms of the world. It's this salary. It's this reputation. It's this image. It's this house, this car, these toys, these things. I'll. I'll he... Boy, He really undervalues your soul, and we buy it all the time. It's so dumb to forfeit your soul, your living self, in favor of these things that are just vapors. Not concrete, not eternal, not what you're made for. And look, it's dumb enough, we would all agree, I think it's dumb enough, to forfeit this present life just for worldly accolades. Have you ever known someone who sacrificed everything for worldly success? Maybe you just watched them from afar. And you think, wow, this, look at this woman. She's achieved success at the highest levels. She worked more hours than she can count. She never took a vacation. She gave her soul for the company. She exceeded every goal. And her husband hates her. Her kids don't know who she is. Her character is absolutely wretched. No one wants to be around her. But hey, she gets a plaque. And she gets a cake from BJ's. And a 30-minute reception. What a waste of a life. It's even more foolish to give up your eternal life in exchange for praise from the choir of the condemned. Your soul is worth so much more. Jesus knows that and He gave everything for it. Do not undervalue yourself. You're worth more than this whole world has to offer. You're worth God the Son coming in all of His holiness and power and going all the way to the cross for the sake of your salvation. This is how much you are worth. Why should you be a disciple of Jesus because he's not going to fail you because it's dumb to live for temporary things finally because judgment hinges on your response judgment hinges on your response like there's times when Jesus uses a parable or some little lighter story and then there are other times like this where he just he goes for the gut Look what he says in verse 38. He's talking about end times matters. If anyone is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So Jesus describes here this final judgment scene at which he, the, the Son of Man, sits as judge over your soul. If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he says. Isn't it amazing how incredibly contemporary the Bible is? From the 1st century to the 21st century, followers of Jesus have lived in an adulterous and sinful generation. This is not some 2018 anomaly. We have not reached the peak of wickedness in human history. We just live where Christ's people have always lived in these types of settings. The question is, will you hold fast to Jesus when that adulterous and sinful generation calls you hateful and narrow-minded and bigoted and homophobic and transphobic and every other slanderous name? Will you hold fast to Jesus when the tide of culture says you are in the minority, you're on the wrong side of history? Will you cling to Jesus when your own family says, you're taking this a little far? Remember what was said of Jesus? Do you remember the names and the slurs that he endured? He was called a blasphemer. He was called a glutton and a drunk. He was called demon-possessed. And that was by religious people. They plotted his death, and then as he hung from the cross, he's mocked, he's ridiculed, he's cursed, he's spit upon. But none of it stopped him from accomplishing what he was sent to do. So, don't let a fear of people and their silly words turn you away from Jesus in any measure. In fact, if you are cursed for doing right, consider it a blessing. What an honor it is to be cursed in the name of Jesus for holding to his truth and living in his way. Loyalty to Jesus matters especially as we submit ourselves to the scorn and the shame of the cross. New England will not experience a spiritual spiritual awakening without Christians who, one, speak the gospel in love, and then, two, bear the ridicule and the shame that come as a result. There are men and women who need the gospel. The harvest is ready for, And you're going to be cursed while you reap that harvest. So welcome it. Prepare for it. Don't turn away from this good and glorious work. The goal is not to be intentionally abrasive. The goal is to be faithful and to endure whatever comes next. And when the followers of Jesus endure the shame, and when that follower of Jesus breathes his or her last and that follower of Jesus stands in front of the Son of Man in the presence of the Father's glory and the holy angels, then you will hear from the Son of Man, well done, my good and faithful servant, and heaven will erupt in praise for the glory your life has brought to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In this small passage, Jesus has told us what the way of the the disciple is like. The way of the disciple is for every believer. This is Christianity 101, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he's told us what it looks like. It's marked by self-denial and carrying your cross. And he's given us reasons why the becauses in these last few verses way of the disciples ultimately the way to eternal life you remember back in 2012 there's this guy in the news named Felix Baumgartner and Felix did this thing called the space jump remember this he got in this little space capsule he's in a space suit Uh, a balloon takes him up into the stratosphere and then he jumped out of that space capsule why I don't know But he just did it. And it was a big media event. The capsule took him up in the air. He he jumped from a height of 127,852 feet. And on his free fall, his top speed was 843.6 miles per hour. If I'm Felix, I want that point six on there. And... And that speed made him the first human to break the sound barrier out of a vehicle. He was in free fall for four minutes and 19 seconds before deploying his parachute. And this was was all on live TV. Of course it was, right? There's advertising dollars to be made. But the whole time, I'm just, I'm making this face. (laughs) Just made my tummy tickle. It's too much. But he made the jump, parachuted safely, everyone clapped, and then watched a Doritos commercial and went on with our day, right? A person can't kind of jump from space. The story isn't, well, I sort of jumped out of the capsule. The story is, I plummeted to Earth below at Mach 1 my gums peeled back to my ears, right? You don't sort of jump from the space capsule. You jump or you don't jump. It's a binary choice. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. No one's sort of a disciple. You don't kind of follow. You deny yourself, take up your cross, and you go. So what do I do if I realize today Yes, I'm a believer, but no, my life doesn't look like that. There's no need for you to doubt your salvation. If you have heard the gospel, you have believed on it, you have trusted Christ for your Savior. But remember, Jesus is speaking to disciples also in this passage, disciples who are not getting it right. So here is his grace to you to say, Brother, sister, my child, this is the way your life is to go. To be sure, following Jesus in this way is a lifelong process. It's not a one and done thing. You don't just one time say, all right, denying myself, taking up the cross and boom, you've got it perfect for the rest of your life. I understand Jesus better and know more about his requirements of me today than I did when I was saved as a teenager. And so my self-denial and my cross-carrying ought to look different today than it did so many years ago. Not so many years ago, but that long ago. And that's why it is for all of us. It's an entry into a relationship, and then it's a lifelong journey with Him as we learn from Him what it means to deny ourselves and to carry our cross. And so this is His grace to you today, brother and sister, that you would hear His Word and you would come and you would respond. And what do I do if I realize I'm not even a believer what Jesus has described here is not anything like what I've done. I've not trusted in Him. I've not asked Him to save me. I've been spiritual. I've been religious, but I'm not a believer. Well, what do I do? Oh, you praise Jesus for His grace to you because He gathered you in also. And He said, listen to me. I, I want you to follow me. And This is what it looks like. Following Jesus is not necessarily just like stepping out of a vehicle in space and plummeting to earth, hoping your parachute deploys before you become a crater in the New Mexico desert. Following Jesus is like stepping out of death and into life out of sin and into forgiveness, out of darkness and into light, out of the wilderness and into a home. It's out of bondage and into freedom. It's out of condemnation and into your Father's arms. And so following Jesus is not a scary proposition after all. It's life abundant and everlasting, and that life begins with your yes. Let's pray together. So Father, thank you for this word to all of us today. And I pray today for friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. No doubt they are good people. They may even be religious or spiritual people. But Lord, here's the truth. There's no one who is saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose again. And so we praise you for this good news and for the grace of this message to us today. Would you give courage and boldness today as you awaken faith in my friends. Do the saving work today. Change their lives this moment by their faith in you. Got to pray for my brothers and sisters who are struggling to live out self-denial and cross-carrying. For those who have become so lax and apathetic in their walk with you, that they're dull to your voice. Would you help them to hear clearly today? Pry those ears open. Soften that hard heart that your children would walk with you in truth and in power. Thank you for your promises to us that you will save us. You have saved us. Thank you for your promise to us that when we walk with you in this way, we stand before you in judgment and righteousness is the verdict. Thank you for your promises to us and your word to us that shows us the way. And thank you that you first went to the cross, rose from the dead. What a joy it is to leave everything behind and receive this treasure. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.